Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back to a brand new series of Everything Else, the FT's culture podcast. This week we'll be discussing Basquiat, a new blockbuster exhibition in London that Grizz has dragged me along to. And later on we'll be talking to the poet and YouTube sensation Holly McNish. This is a new series, the third series of everything else, and we've made some changes, including a new person sitting opposite me in the studio. Hi, Al. Hi, Grizz. I, I should introduce you fully, Alexander Gilmore. Um, is that how you'd like to be known? I, I think Al would be fine, but I think another change that we thought we might make is that you might be known to our readers as Grizz, which I believe is what you're known by your family and fiancé. Is that right? And friends, yes. And friends, you have friends as well. (laughs) So Al, why don't you tell our listeners something about what do you do at the FT and what do you do when you're not at the FT? I think being asked to introduce yourself is probably the world's most painful question that you can ask. (laughs) Tell um, us something interesting about yourself. Well, I got married a few years ago and my best man, he stood up and he gave a speech in which very cleverly he went through all the stages of my life, pointing out why each one had been a disaster and he was kind of right. <laughs> so it sort of starts with, when I was a child, I wanted to be a cricketer. Yeah. I couldn't really play cricket. Okay. And, and then later I trained as an actor and <laughs> I never, never really did any acting. And then I wrote a novel about my life not really acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my novel was, was rejected by a publisher because she really, really hated the main character that was me. <laughs> and then I wanted to be a war correspondent. I but didn't I, know about that one. Well, I've never, well, I've never been to a war, um, so that didn't work out. And then, age thirty-two, I sort of washed up on the <laughs> FT Arts desk as their oldest intern ever. Which is where we met. Indeed, it's where we met. Uh, you were sort of high flying at that point. <laughs> then, five years later, I've become the food and drink editor, which is a bit like being a war correspondent. And I'm doing this podcast, so I think that this is probably my last shot at making anything of myself in this lifetime. Well, that was an excellent introduction, Al, and, you know, welcome to the studio. Think of it as a stage. So we've got some exciting things lined up this series. We've done quite a few interviews already. We've been very busy over the summer. Al, who have you been speaking to? I have been speaking to Holly McNish. Who we're going to be hearing from later. And I spoke to Natalia Cohen, who's definitely the friendliest person that's ever come into uh, these rather serious offices. Um, <laughs> she she rode across the Pacific in an all-woman boat crazily, and she hugged everyone she met at the FT. And she had glitter on her face. I didn't notice the glitter, but um, <laughs> well, that did. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> I have been talking to the Nigerian-American writer and photographer Teju Cole, whose new book Blind Spot is a mixture of writings and photographs. And the Indian novelist and sort of experimental modernist, postmodernist Amit Chowdhury. And Maria Alakina or Masha from Pussy Riot. But first we're going to rewind to last night. Um, today is a beautiful sunny day, uh, but last night felt rather different. 
here we are, it's Thursday night. We're standing outside beautiful Barbican Centre. It's grey and grim. It's about seven o'clock at night. Why are we here? We are here, Al, to see the Barbican's Basquiat exhibition. It's the first exhibition like this in the UK since the 90s, and his work is not anywhere in any public collections in the UK, so this is a kind of first-in-a-generation show. So we're very lucky to be here. So all the hipsters queuing up, as you can see, are young. They've never seen this before, and they look pretty excited. Yeah, and they look worryingly cool. Basquiat's influence stretches into fashion, hip-hop, way beyond the bounds of, of visual art and contemporary art. Should I know more about Basquiat than I do? Probably. <laughs> you don't know how little I know. You're about to find out. One way you might have come across him is a work of his sold back in May for $110.5 million. It was called Untitled, as actually quite a lot of his works are. Is that a lot? It makes him the most expensive American artist. Sold at auction. So he was in the news back in May. OK, that's a lot. I'm sold. It's the first week of a new job and I'm so excited that I haven't really slept which has made me feel a little bit mellow and slightly delirious. But maybe that's a good state to be in to see a Basquiat show. He knew delirious. Well, I'm in the perfect frame of mind. I'm slightly nervous that I may not be cool enough to enjoy the show. I've been watching YouTube videos of Basquiat all week and I can tell you he was incredibly cool. There was something so charismatic, so beautiful about him, so... You sound like you're in love. <laughs> Let's go and check it out. We've just come out of the Basquiat show. We were there for just over an hour. You just bought the catalogue and the poster. So I'm desperate to know, how was it for you? Well, the book cost me £39.99. And I gather that you got one from the press, people. I got a PDF. But I think I'm going to enjoy my book more than you because I spent so much money on it and I bought the poster a poster Hollywood Africans 1983 it's very yellow because okay I loved the show I thought it was amazing but I was I was so flattened by it I went in worried that I wouldn't be cool enough for this show I, I think I was cool enough for it no I wasn't cool enough for it but but that's not what worries me anymore what worries me is that I'm not certain I'm clever enough for it Hmm, I know what you mean. I mean, Basquiat, there is a kind of trickiness about it in that it's, his canvases are totally littered with all of these references. But I wonder whether it's actually necessary to sort of understand all of them. I think if you understand some of them, you can sort of get a sense of what, of what he's getting at. But I think beyond that, actually, the things that I like about him are the amazing colours that he uses. He has this very short instinct for colour, almost like, you know, they could be like abstract paintings, except for I think it's quite important that they're not. They're paintings with lots of meaning and sort of figures in them. There's also quite cool sort of scratchy, cartoony line drawings. Yeah, no, I got, I got that. I could see that, I could feel that. It has a kind of emotional power. Like, these are sort of powerful works. They, like, hit you in the chest. Unquestionably, it has emotional power. But it is also, you know, you need to be, like, a sort of code breaker to, like, understand them. They, they are so dense. The symbolism is so intricate. It seems to be painting on top of paintings, on top of paintings. There are so many elements to them. I think you need to be, like, a serious sort of maybe like a maths genius to get to the bottom of them. We were in there for an hour and a quarter. I think that if I'd been in there for uh, like two weeks, three weeks, I would still feel 
slightly stupid child. I think probably Basquiat was cleverer at the age of 22, 25, or however old he was when he made these works than like either of us will ever be. That's probably just the case. But at the same time, I just don't know that you have to know everything that's going on. I think, so I'm coming to this having seen a show already of Basquiat's a couple of years You're ago. You're a big expert, aren't you? <laughs> not, not an expert, but I did see a Basquiat show in, at the Guggenheim in Bilbao and did some reading around that. And some of the stuff I found out was kind of interesting. For example, he uses words like milk and soap and cotton, which seem like sort of everyday objects. Actually, milk is about whiteness and kind of race. Soap is about whitewashing. Cotton is about slavery and the sort of cotton plantations. There are sort of things that once you know a little bit, I think the canvases, you could begin to sort of unpack them and unpick them a bit. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm, I'm not there yet with unpicking it. As I said, I'd, I could appreciate it from an aesthetic and from an, an emotional point of view. And I, and I really wanted to like him. I don't, I'm not sure if that reflects well on me either. Why did you really want to like him? Is that because the, the people in the queue were so beautiful? I mean, we've just had London Fashion Week and this kind of felt like an extension of London Fashion Week. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to feel like a sort of dirty old flannel. But his art is a sort of like bold reminder that you're not cool, isn't it? Like, you know, you're seeing videos of him dancing like this sort of ethereal butterfly. And I simply don't dance like that. It's sort, of, it's sort of inspiring. I think he's the opposite of an artist like Jack Fetriano. Do you remember that guy? It's like the world's most unloved, most safe, most boring. Uh, the world's worst artist. He's the artist for people, listeners who haven't seen his paintings. They're sort of these slightly pervy, glamorous paintings of sort of men and women dancing on beaches in ball gowns. And I think that like, Basquiat is the opposite of that. Like, if Fetriano is, is the art for people who hate art, Basquiat is for like the hyper cool art aficionado. And also Basquiat himself loved art. He was taken to museums in New York like MoMA by his mother when he was quite young at the weekend and he was always referencing artists from you know from kind of jazz musicians like Charlie Parker to writers like William Burroughs to Titian, Matisse, Leonardo who was totally obsessed with Leonardo's anatomical drawings and I think like people sometimes think of him as like this sort of graffiti scribbler never went to art school dropped out of school when he was 16 or whatever and that he's somehow kind of untaught and there was a lot of racism in all of that as well but actually he's like highly sophisticated and kind of clever in the way that he uses other artists he was very much inserting black lives into art history he said something like i never saw black people in paintings and so i always made the protagonist of my work black and it was often a self-portrait you know he had quite epic ambitions he he was painting history paintings and inserting black people into history and i think that's why he is still really relevant today and why the show feels quite fresh. I mean, it doesn't feel like some kind of historical piece from the 80s. No, no, it feels extremely fresh, extremely alive. And I think I think I need to go back. Maybe without you. Um, we didn't actually just speak really, to each other. Just really try and get under the skin of Basquiat. I've got my book and, and I've got my poster, so... Um. So you couldn't start swatting up. To help us unpick some of this stuff, we're going to head back to the studio and talk to the writer and curator Echo Eschen. He's just written a piece called Black Like Basquiat for Afropunk and he's hosting a talk on Basquiat and black masculinity at the Ace Hotel in London in November.
So, Echo, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. In your essay, Black Like Basquiat, you describe how Basquiat's race affected the way that his art was received back in the 80s. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, Basquiat is a prodigy. He's brilliantly talented, but his meteoric success put him in his unusual position in the early 80s, where he's one of the very few African-American artists of significant prominence in an overwhelmingly white art world. He's regarded in that art world sometimes as a prodigy and a genius by the likes of Warhol and so on, but he's also regarded with scepticism as an arrivist, an interloper, someone who essentially trades on race, someone who is a graffiti artist, uh, best made good, a bit of a chancer and so on. So he's often described in reviews and criticism at that time as having this kind of instinctive attitude. He's called sort of primitive and things, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he's called patronising, in one case, uh, Warhol's mascot. He was self-taught, yes, but, you know, there's this famous incident when he's 10, I think, and he has this car accident, and he's laid up in bed for several months. His mother gives him a copy of Grey's Anatomy. He imbibes this, such that his paintings are an adult, and his drawings are full of kind of these anatomically incisive drawings of the human body. Yeah, you can really see them in the show. Then, on top of all of that, to be described as someone without knowledge, without craft, without skill, without insight, is a deep insult. And I'm insulted on his behalf too, actually. Has that perception of his work changed in the intervening years? I mean, the show had huge cues going around the block. It's been very well received. Yes, it has changed. No, it hasn't changed in some parts because, you know, it still feels like today that there's still some cultural anxiety around Basquiat. There's still some sense of, well, is he just making it up? Do the drawings make any sense? Do the paintings really have any depth to them? During his lifetime, there are no institutional public shows of his work at all, that he wasn't in kind of uh, public collections. His first actual public show when he was alive was in the UK. I think there's still some reluctance. However, having said that, times have changed to the extent that Basket's reputation has only grown. It's grown financially, obviously, but it's also grown to the extent that now public response to him the kind of young response to him is enormous, such that, yes, the queues outside the barbecue, I went to the private view, there were like 40-minute queues at a private view. It was kind of one in. in, one out, like a yeah. nightclub or something. <laughs> yeah, so, which is a sort of telling and, and useful comparison. <laughs> if someone, possibly like me, feels out of their depth mm-hmm. um, when they're going around a basket show, they may love it, they may um, feel baffled, they may respond in a, in a strong, emotional way, but feel that they don't quite get it intellectually how would you teach them to get it man ow i just i i, I feel just you just relax a little bit and as much as look there's a certain aspect of madness like you can sort of chase your tail trying to divine all the words and all the meanings and all the crossings out and all the references in a basket painting actually you don't really need to do that i don't I think, know if you can actually well no no, 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 no. Could I mean, anyone. they're sort of personal to him but they're personal to his fascinations and obsessions as well i think the overall thing for me is that you can sort of enjoy the totality of the work. Like, Basquiat produced a lot of paintings. Not all of them are great. I think it's less about saying, OK, look, um, see this painting and taking its whole, because, yeah, a lot of the large ones especially are incredibly, incredibly dense. There's a um, larger issue of being able to enjoy the aesthetic. One of the things I, I really like about Basquiat is the kind of energy, the dynamism of those paintings. Yes, their complexity, but also their sense of humour and their ability I would say to convey something of the 
complexity of even the world right now. We live in this world, this intensely mediated environment, you know, we're in. In a way, Basquiat anticipated, not in literal terms, but certainly in the kind of physicality of those paintings that have all this kind of density of information flowing across them and so on. You don't have to break down all of those images you don't to, have to appreci- go in there and decode yeah, yeah, yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, like a detective. Are, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I did find myself some, like feeling overwhelmed by some of the, you know, the, the layers of symbolism. Yeah. I mean, yes, they're pretty intense and... It takes a while to get around the show, you know, on that basis. But I've already been there three times and <laughs> quite happy to go back again. A, because actually it's very unlikely we'll see another show like that of its scale, you know, in a generation or so. Anyway. Why not? Why not? Basquiat is kind of one of the most kind of um, works are intensely valuable, but they're also commercial commodities, you know. There are 100 works in that show. There are probably about 100 lenders from all around the world who are all quite wary about lending them because they're quite valuable paintings, but also because the paintings change hands all the time. Because they're these kind of um, high-value commodities, they're in constant kind of circulation as a kind of um, high-net-worth currency. So it becomes really, really difficult to assemble the words. And this is a sort of another issue of the fact that he wasn't bought by museums when he was alive. So the value of the works goes up too high for museums to buy and so on. There's not that many works in public collections. I Most think there of the aren't any in the UK. Putting together the show is the equivalent of a basket painting in its own right, in terms of the kind of complexity <laughs> wow. and in interlacing. A, I think in a way that this is one of the strange ironies about Basquiat, that a lot of his work is quite anti-commercialisation. He uses these copyright symbols and these kind of TMs and he puts little logos and then scribbles them out. You know, he was very commercial in his own lifetime. By the time that he died at 27, he was kind of flying around the world, having all of these shows, you know, kind of very celebrated. And yet it seems like he had this quite difficult relationship with commerce. Yeah, he's intensely aware of his own commodification, both as an artist also as a visible figure, as a public figure, as a black figure. He's aware of how his images are used. And also, the thing is, he's also aware. Part of the thing with the trademarks and the copyright symbols and so on is also a kind of legacy issue because he's aware of how black artistic genius in previous generations have been used and abused. So he's aware of how many signal iconic jazz artists that he admires have ended up broken, penniless. Charlie Parker ends up dead on the hotel room floor. Billie Holiday ends up in an unmarked grave. He's aware of these things and he's aware of how their legacy has in certain respects been taken out of their hands at different times along the way. It's also about saying, look, I'm special. His other iconic logo, as it were, is a crown, mm. you know, which is about saying, look, sort of I'm going yeah, yeah. to invest myself here with a level that you can't touch. I'm going to be the king. I'm going to assert a position for myself and insist on that. One of the other things we wanted to ask you was about this new Banksy that's appeared outside the Barbican. It looks like it's an image of a Basquiat-style figure who's being kind of searched by a policeman and a policewoman, I think. What do you think Banksy's saying with this graffiti piece? I mean, I think part of the Banksy thing, again, actually, is yet another commentary on how a figure like Basquiat is understood, let's say, in the kind of popular imagination, the public imagination, how he's lauded right now, how he, he wasn't necessarily lauded during his time, how he's become a kind of a cash asset for the hyper-rich in a sort of quite cheeky kind of, Banksy where it's also an attempt to insert himself into uh, both a dialogue about the worth of Basquiat but also insert himself in a way as a sort of heir to Basquiat. Do you think he is an heir to Basquiat? Well, I mean, no. I mean, mean, he's he's himself and it's not a sort of shot against Banksy or anything like that but there are many heirs to Basquiat. Banksy might claim some aspect of that. You know, in certain respects, I, I actually find it hard to think of 
Well, let me put it this way. I can think of many artists who are influenced by Basquiat directly, indirectly, especially but not exclusively at all black artists in the UK and the US who have adopted aspects of sometimes the work, but also probably more than that, his approach to dealing with their own personal social position, also their market position as well. And obviously also he lays out a cautionary tale of what happens when you become too absorbed in all those processes, when they can actually get on top of you. In your piece, you say this is the best and worst of times to be black. Can you unpack that a bit? My thing is that we're sort of in an incredible time in all sorts of ways, you know. One of those, I think, if you're a black cultural creative figure, you have more voice, more agency than any other time in history. That's crowned by the fact that, you know, in the US, just a black president, but also by the fact that in sheer artistic terms, you know, you have this vast range of works. You have Moonlight, um, you know, winning its Oscar. You have Steve McQueen, you have Beyonce, you have Jay-Z, you have Marlon James winning the Booker, you have Colson Whitehead, you have Paul Beattie. You have all of these kind of figures from across Vyinka Shonibari, you have Chris Afili, Zadie Smith, Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie. You have all these figures from across culture who have a significant voice and a significant presence in ways individually and collectively that they haven't had before. And at the same time as that, you have in American terms black people being shot on the streets by the police who are whose job it is to protect them. You have a disproportionate rate of stop and search and incarceration for black people in the UK. So you also have a time of high vulnerability, which hasn't changed. For me, the best of times and also the worst of times. And then the question within that is, well, OK, well, how do we respond to that? What do we say? What words or what images or what art can come through to delineate those times how would basquiat respond to those times i mean in a way basquiat is sorry to jump in i I mean in a way it feels like he's responding i mean his work is about police brutality and and those kind of issues absolutely there was um there was a young young guy i think he was called michael stewart and there was a painting basquiat did called the death of michael stewart who was killed who was kind of vaguely associated to basquiat killed in some sort of police altercation indeed in some circumstances that were difficult and suspicious basquiat felt that very keenly feeling like this could have been him rather than the person who was killed but more than that sort of direct statement basquiat is always commenting on this experience of race and of duality and complexity of identity and this kind of difficulties of being positioned as other in America. But Basquiat, from, as it were, beyond the grave, through his work, is commenting on that now. Madonna has said that Basquiat was too fragile for this world. And I think she meant it as a compliment about how angelic and beautiful she found him to be. But his work doesn't strike me as at all fragile. It's quite the opposite. I'd sort of go with some of that, actually. In as much as, look, part of the reason why it's so complex is because it's also so hyper-aware of itself and so kind of uh, conscious of ways of seeing and ways of looking and ways of feeling and ways of being. One of the things I like in the show is that at different moments there are kind of video clips and film clips of Basquiat talking. You don't actually see him talking very much because he doesn't like doing interviews. But there's one great screen where I mean, Warhol had been interviewed. Did you see that bit? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, you know, and, they're yeah. sort of, and they were sort of actually very close, very surprisingly close friends and so on. This kind of interview, Warhol is this kind of uh, kind of deadpan figure with a 
white wig and so on. But Basquiat is really uncomfortable on screen. He's quite a diffident person. He's got bad skin. He's not very articulate. Yeah, but he's very charming and he's very beautiful, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He comes, he has great, like, screen presence. He doesn't look like he knows he has great screen presence to some extent, though. Oh, but he's got a smile. He knows he... He's charming. I mean, yeah, he's, he's yeah. You know, he's he knows he's charming. But let's try. Let's try and put ourselves in basket shoes. You sell your first painting. You know, whatever is probably like late teens, early twenties. First painting goes to Debbie Harry from Blondie. That was in nineteen eighty one. Sells that for two hundred dollars. No exaggeration. Within months, you're selling paintings for tens of thousands of dollars. You know, by the time you're in your early 20s, you've made your first million. You're negotiating this world. You know, you've grown up in, you know, fairly culturally sophisticated kind of Brooklyn family. But you're elevated to this rank. You're called the radiant child. It's a very difficult process to negotiate for anyone. You know, you're also using drugs kind of uh, recreationally. And that's going to throw you off in some ways and so on. So you're going to oscillate, if I suspect. You're going to oscillate between moments of great confidence, moments of some alarm. It's going to mess with your head. Yeah, there is this sense that people want a bit of him as yeah, well, that everyone yeah. wanted to have yeah, a bit I of mean, him, you know, claim I mean, to know him. Yeah, because he's so cool. Yeah. He's so cool. I mean, yeah, all of these things, except that he's really young. And some of them are older, some of them are more knowing about, let's say, you know, economics of the art world. And so, so you can get through a lot of this by the fact that you're the artist. But actually, he goes through this meteoric rise, but actually by... I mean, it's crazy to talk about the latter period, but let's say, you know, the later 20s, his career seems to be on the wane. You know, he's taken a lot of drugs. He does a joint show with Warhol that's badly reviewed. That dents his confidence quite a lot. By the end, he's kind of in debt. He's borrowing money, despite having made millions, despite his work selling on a secondary market for a lot of money. He's kind of in trouble. It's not just about him being this kind of ascendant figure. He's also afraid on the inside as well. What's the one thing we should take from this exhibition? I'm tempted to say that the one thing is everything. It, it just, you know, unhelpfully, you can't, you can't say that. unhelpfully in that. The fascinating thing for me is that I think he's an artist that can talk about the texture of our times. Like, I think it's less about saying he's a former graffiti artist who did this, who did that. I think it's more... If we just stop and think about how complex, how strange the times we live in always are, how many different channels of communication and cultural expression going backwards and forwards all the time, how much anger, hope, desire we kind of experience all the time. He's an artist who seems to be able to sum up that condition within one painting. Specifically in 2017, or would this have been the case in 2005, well, 1997? The, the point about any, I think, great artist is that they can sum up their time and seem to surmount their time simultaneously. And I would absolutely say that about him. But is this a specifically Basquiat time, do you think? Oh, good Lord, yes. Isn't it? it how could it not be? Look, I think it you is. Know. Yeah, after seeing the exhibition. Yeah, yeah. we live in his time. Yeah. He anticipated that, and that's why the paintings feel so dynamic right now because even though he's dead the paintings are very 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 much alive al when i convinced you to join me in the podcast studio i asked you who you might like to interview and the first person you said was holly mcnish the poet why was that well i'm in love um <laughs> i mean i'm in love with her as a, as, as a poet with her I'm, writing. I'm in love with her writing, exactly. I mean, the way she delivers her poems. Most poetry that you read 
well, at least that I read, it makes you sort of feel like you're back at school. It's like doing homework or you're, or you're back in church and you, it makes you want to go and do something else. But when I discovered Holly Manish's poetry, I think it's completely different. I think there is an immediacy and a tenderness to her work, which is really, really magnetic and easy to understand without being basic. This isn't childish, but it's accessible. I've shared her poems with people like my wife who, who would never read a poem. And for people who don't know what kind of things she writes about, what, what are these poems about? Well, she has often written about being a young mother. She has a poem called Embarrassed about breastfeeding. That's um, her most famous poem, in fact, which is the only one I, I knew when you said you wanted to. Yeah, it has like something, something crazy, like seven million hits on YouTube. You have to remember that this is a this is a poem. This isn't this isn't Justin Bieber like pulling down his pants. This is this is an actual just a poem said by you know a very bright white about woman about breastfeeding and about the the social stigma globally attached to poor young mothers who are forced to breastfeed like in toilets um, because uh, men find it offensive when you know we're very happy to look at violence and stuff like and that. Page three, yeah, and so she's yeah. everywhere. But she's also written a lot about her. Ex- the experience of being a young mother. And she writes also about, there's a wonderful poem called Mathematics about immigration. And she manages to sort of tackle big political topics, which she clearly feels very, very passionate about in a very urgent way, without ever sounding sort of ranty. And as I said, I'm completely in love. You're a fan. We should also say that she won the Ted Hughes Poetry Prize earlier this year. So not only is she kind of a YouTube sensation, but she's sort of... She's kind of acclaimed on the page as well. She's one of the poets who's made that bridge. Yes, but I get the feeling that she doesn't really care about that. that no, much. I don't know if she's that bothered. Like she wrote, she'd written <laughs> hundreds of poems before she ever had them yeah. published. There's a story that I heard about that when the young Holly McNish got angry with someone, she would write them a poem you know, to her parents or to her friends um, instead <laughs> of confronting them in the normal way. So, exclusive to this podcast, I can report, and this is really a scoop, but two things... <laughs> it's your first episode and already you've it's got a already scoop. A, I know, this is a big deal. <laughs> two things have not happened since I spoke to Holly. One of them is that Holly McNish has not written me an angry poem, um, which is good in a way, mm-hmm. because that means that probably means she's not that angry. Mm-hmm. But it's also a bit sad because I would have liked to have a poem. You were trying to get a poem out of her. Yeah, I, well, I did definitely want a poem. The other thing is that has not happened is that she has not accepted my request to be her friend on Facebook. Oh, God. And this might be... Tragic. Well, yeah. I mean, I, it might be because during the interview, I kept saying how much I liked her poems because they're so honest and they sound like she's stripping off. You did use yeah, that did, phrase. Yeah, and so that, that might be part of it. She did sign my book at the end, which was nice, but it's a slightly disappointing thing that she wrote. She wrote, to Al, it was so, so lovely to meet you. So that's good, isn't mm-hmm. it? Two so's. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for listening and reading the poems. I write. That's all good. And then she wrote, have a great life, as if we're never going to meet again. Which is <laughs> Goodbye, sad. Yeah. Holly. Anyway, shall we listen to her? She started by reading her poem. It's called Working in the Photo Department at Boots the Chemist. When the writer said photo, relief. Cookshop was grim. Second floor, one till on your own all day. 
Three customers in six sodding hours. Sometimes still you could not move from that till. Must look busy. Holly, head up, look busy. Holly, head up, look busy. Holly, head up, look busy. Giving not one shit. I had no sodding idea what those Brita filters did. The photo department was so much better. Instead of selling kettles, those Sundays were spent expectant, as the negatives came to life on the conveyor belt. No customers on Sundays see just memories, printed in reverse order we watched them reborn. Willies were the best, of course, close-up ones or sex shots. Quietly, we discussed which photograph to place on top in the paper wallet for the people working weekdays. Imagined Maureen, Monday morning cheeks aflame as she made her way through the correct customer procedure. 1. Greet the customer. 2. Ask the customer's surname. 3. Collect the customer's photo wallet. 4. Open the photo wallet and show the customer the top photograph. 5. Verify whether this is in fact their photograph. 6. If so, take the payment. 7. Thank the customer. That Sunday, a crowd had gathered round to see the dress. Wedding photos attracted almost as many staff voyeurs as sex and she looked stunning. Gorgeous bride, how lovely. Staff revived all smiling. Well, a cockshot always shocked, but this timing was atrocious. We questioned it at first, erupted more with each exposure. The photographs were always printed in reverse order. It went... The wedding night, the groom arrives, the bridesmaids get their makeup done, the groom, a tongue, some breast, dark sky, mouth giving, head, lips, not his wife's. A taxi ride, his hand inside her, open thigh, some blurry gropes, more shots, some blurry gropes, more shots, first round, the stags leave home. The bride collected first thing Monday, like a kid come to a sweetie shop. I still worry that we should have put a different photograph on top. I've watched you so much on YouTube. I feel like I know the real Holly McNeil. Because <laughs> I um, overshare. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's oversharing, but you must have people think that all the time. They must think that that they know you because your work feels like you've you stripped off and you're just showing the world exactly who you are. That's a nice thing to say. Yeah, I guess I do get um, a lot of people at gigs coming up and kind of sharing things about themselves that you maybe wouldn't share with someone you just met. But it's lovely, really. Yeah, I do share quite a lot of personal things I think sometimes it depends what mood I'm in if I'm in a sort of scared mood and worried that I don't know if I've had a a lot of hate mail or anything on YouTube that day and then people start to say that they feel like they know me then sometimes I get a bit worried or think no you don't you don't know me but then if I'm in a in a good mood then I, I really like it it feels like you've got lots more friends than you actually have <laughs> As a writer, but also as a performer, to a degree, you you have to create and have created a public persona, a public Holly. How close is that to, do you feel that is to you? Most of the poems I write, I've not written in order to publish them. So I guess like with Plum, even though it was the first time I've had a proper editor, still none of the poems were actually written for the collection but I don't I don't work that way so the way that it always works is if I get asked to do a collection then I look through all the poems that I've already written these poems just just come come to you <laughs> yeah I guess so yeah like I never sit down and think right today I'm going to write a poem because I couldn't do it and I don't think I don't think it would work like that so I'll get an idea in my head and then just sort of sit down and write it normally don't really know when it's going to be it could be on the train I write quite a lot on my phone because it's often if I'm sort of sitting on a bench in a park and 
kids are playing, then I'll get an idea in my head. And then when I sort of write a book, I guess it's a case of, it's not a case of what to write, it's more a case of which poems to share. And that doesn't tend to be the ones that I'd be most embarrassed to share Although I do get sometimes, like my mum phoning me saying, "Please don't put that, <laughs> please don't put that one in the book." Um, but yeah, it's all, it's all. I always write for myself. I think it's as close, as close as I could get to myself. You're writing for yourself, but it sounds like you have something to say, and that you really it needs to be said. It doesn't just feel like a beautifully constructed um, arrangement of words it feels yeah. like there is a sort of there is an urgency to the need to express yourself is that is that where the poems come from yeah I think so and it's more like it's not that I'm writing for someone else and it's not that I write poems or have ever written poems I only started reading them out when I was about 25 but by then I'd already written hundreds of poems and all my diaries in teenage years had been in poems for some reason but I'd never I'd never read them out, but they were still in the similar sort of rhyming format, I guess, as they are now. It's not like through a love of language, I don't think. I wouldn't spend hours trying to find the perfect word to include into a poem. It's more I've got an idea in my head or I want to work out what I think about something or I've got a, a story which I think is quite funny. But there is still a love of language. Okay. There's a love of language, but I guess it's using language to express myself Quite urgently or quite quickly. I like the idea that this poem was written in 20 minutes and or in even, like, some of them are written in about a minute and just got it off my chest. And it doesn't need to be a perfectly formed sonnet. So the poems, the poems you've read for us, they were written what, in a matter of minutes? Or? Yeah, most of them. Like, the short ones, definitely. They were probably just written down as as I thought them. The longer ones, the one that I worked on the most is the poem about working at Boots and I, I was trying to remember the situation because I wanted, I sort of wanted the reader to understand it. So that one, when I was editing the book, I did work on a, a bit more because when I was sort of going through the photographs from this wedding, I wanted people to understand what the story was. So I needed to specifically choose the photographs that would explain the story. So I changed that bit of it quite a lot. A poem like Yanking, which is <laughs> um, partly about wanking, it's a short poem. It's, it looks simple. It's expressed in a, in a simple, sort of disarmingly frank and funny way. It's crude up to a point. Yeah. But it's also... It's strangely life-affirming and, <laughs> and tender and beautiful. Your poems seem to strike me as being very direct, but but they linger as well. I think lots of the things that we call crude in our society, they're not. They're the things that most people find the most pleasure in, I think. The idea that quite a lot of the time people say that I write about taboos and things that other people don't talk about, but actually the things that I write about are exactly what I do talk about. I just talk about them to my friends, I guess, or at, or at parties or when people have had a couple of drinks or I think of all the things you do in life, actually it's those sort of teenage stories or the first time you sort of touch someone else's skin or these are, the, to me, they're kind of the things that, that life's about. That seems like a good moment to move on to your poem, Touch. Yeah. Um, from an earlier uh -huh. book. Someone did a survey, which I think inspired you, that found out yeah. that Britain was the worst country in the whole world <laughs> yeah. at touching other people. Yeah, well, not at touch, but I read this study online of a guy that had um, he'd done his PhD about touch and about different types of touch, and he'd gone and sat in 
cafes and restaurants and just observe the number of times people around the world touched each other. And the, the only kind of rules to this was that it couldn't be lovers. So it was just people with platonic relationships or family. I think Argentina was his sort of top scoring country, if you put it like that. And people touched each other on average about 100 times an hour. Any time someone told a joke, they touch their shoulders or have their hands around them. And, and on meeting and greeting, obviously in other countries, there's a lot more touching, whereas we sort of awkwardly shake hands or maybe give a tap on the back. Britain had an average of zero times an hour that we touched each other when we met. But they said we were really good at... We, we basically saw touch as either violent or sexual. It was never just a friendly touch. And we seemed to be so awkward about just sort of rubbing someone's back. And we were paid to have a massage for an hour because it's sort of in an official capacity. But, oh my God, we wouldn't dare just ask our friend to like stroke our head for half an hour because that would be seen as weird or sexual. Or We seem to put touch into these places where you have to pay to experience it. The last person we had in here insisted on hugging everyone she met. And oh, really? <laughs> there we go. I get quite a lot of that. If I do that poem, Touch at Gigs, then I tend to get quite a lot of hugs at the book signing, which is nice. So maybe I just need to read more poems about wanting a hug. <laughs> there seems to me a, maybe a, a conflict between some of the content of your poems, which, if you look at it on the page, can seem very confrontational, and the way that you read them. It never feels like an assault. They could, it could be an assault, couldn't it? it yeah. I mean, one of my favourite ones, mathematics, is a brutal, witty diatribe against ignorant people who are anti-immigration. It doesn't feel like that when you read it. Well, I don't think it's meant to be like that. Like That, that poem I, I wrote while I was studying forced migration. I did a master's in economics and, um, and I was in a lecture, but I was also working in a clothes shop at the same time and we had to really... A customer that came in and was basically horrible to the two staff members who were from Bulgaria. So it was sort of a response to them and also a response to a, a person that I knew quite closely. But I don't see the point of shouting. I don't I don't think it helps to like make fun of someone who's like anti immigration or there's all sorts of reasons why people have political beliefs that they have. So I don't I've never really been a sort of shouty person. I don't wanna mm-hmm. I don't wanna shout at anyone. Is it true that when you were younger, instead of confronting your parents, you'd write them poems. Yeah, and anyone really. Like the idea of a one-on-one conversation about something serious always petrified me, and it still does. But they they were often for things like my, my mum and dad found a poem that I'd written about not being allowed a cat when I was eight years old, and I was so angry, and I'd sort of stomped upstairs and written this poem. But some of them I gave to people, and some of them... I kept to myself. It was just a way to get to get anger off my chest, I guess. But they sent that to me when I was at university, and, and yeah. So if it goes badly today, are you going to send me a poem? Right, <laughs> <laughs> a poem. But it happened, you know, sort it's of almost worth it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to insult me, and they'll get annoyed. And <laughs> men have a occasionally have a sort of rough time in some of your poems. I mean, there are some boyfriends that are. Sent to hospital. <laughs> but are there also there are various men who are inept or bullying or actually there are quite a lot of perverts too. Yeah, Is that well, how men are? I don't think so. I think there's just as many nice poems about men in my books. Like I, I write about my granddad a lot. I write about my ex-partner, like my daughter's dad a lot. I think there's quite a lot of... I'd say it's quite an even balance. It's quite There's quite a lot of sort of love poems to men as well. I guess more of my bad experiences 
have been from met like especially in plum i guess right i've written a lot about sort of working in waitressing and there's a poem about the boss that i had who used to touch my bum every time i was walking upstairs or make me wear specific stuff so that he could kind of try and grope me and i can't really pretend that he was a woman because he wasn't but um i guess when i have had negative experiences most of them have been have been from like men who are strangers but i think the poems that are about growing up in teenage years i had as many male friends as i had female so i hope it's quite a balance i think it is a balance but there are there's the little chef guy who you gob in his I mean, he was, like, calling his wife a (laughs) B-I-T-C-H and not letting her order her own meal. Do you get nervous reading your poems? I mean, they're very very personal, and I imagine reading them is just another... is an extra stage of stripping off. Yeah, I I do get really nervous reading them. It's maybe not actually sharing things that I get nervous about. It's literally the standing on stage with lots of people staring at you that I get nervous about so that sort of stage fright idea and I get very nervous about actually knowing the poem so I think of all the people I know I'm I'm maybe the only one that's come in the sort of spoken wordy circles who still only reads from a book like I used to try and learn them off by heart but I used to just be sick before every gig and I can't I can't handle that sort of nerve so now I read them from the book just because I, I was hating it really but I don't think anymore I don't get so nervous sharing personal things I guess because I get a lot of nice feedback from people and I feel like well if I do have the confidence to do this and if it even helps one other person who's maybe thinking this but wouldn't say it that's a good thing do you think you read your poems better than anyone else <laughs> I don't know. The reason why Probably I not. I don't know. I, f- I find it weird hearing other people read it because sometimes I've heard a few other people read it because people have asked if they can read my poems or I've heard a few recordings of other people reading it. And I do not mind. I'm not really precious about it. The only thing is that sometimes they read them in a more angry way than I would like them to be read. I can't read your poems without actually having your voice in my head it's and i'm not sure whether that's because of my youtube obsession <laughs> um or because the voice just comes ringing through so distinctly i like other people reading my poems i had a lot of speech therapy when i was a teenager so my own voice i, I know it's quite like <laughs> squeaky and sort of i don't know half like i've lived in london when i haven't so i quite i quite like it i quite like hearing my poem in different accents and stuff do you rehearse yeah I get sort of laughed at a bit by people that have been doing it for the same amount of time because before every gig I always go into another room and read them to myself and I used to, my friends used to laugh at me because I, I would do, like I taught Nobody Told Me the last book for about a year and a half and I was reading roughly the same poems, like I would change them a little bit but there was sort of ten that I would always read and I, I always was rehearsing and people sort of... <laughs> I said, why are you doing that? But I just, people have paid money to come and see it and I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> I guess the worst thing I was told on one tour was to go off the stage and then wait for an encore. And then when there's an encore, you like walk back up, but just, they were like, just stay at the side of the stage, but don't leave. And that sort of thing, that sort of like theatrical setup, I cannot, I cannot handle. So then I started saying to people, okay, I'm meant to be doing an encore, but you might not even want one. So I'm going to pretend this is my last poem, but it's not. <laughs> And then you can clap and then I'll read another one. I just can't handle that sort of fake. That goes well with, <laughs> that goes well with the poems. It's not, a, it's not a sort of strident voice to you. No, I just, and it's really lovely that people want to 
want to come and hear the poems, really. But no, I don't really want to do any sort of show. Even the idea, I mean, when you do sound checks and people say, oh, you're going to take the mic out of the stand, it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to walk around the stage. <laughs> when you were a teenager, did you think that this is what you would do? No, not at all. I don't, I don't know if it would have even crossed my mind that that was an occupation that somebody could have. Like, I didn't want to do writing. I was I was pretty obsessed with languages, though. Like, I was a very hard-working... But I had a, like, I had a really nice teenage life. I, I, I really liked teenagerhood, or however you'd call it. But no, I didn't want to be a writer. I just wrote... I don't even know why I wrote poems. I just found it really a really good way to get things off my chest. Um and then I just wanted to study other languages. Like, I really loved other languages. I used to sort of... I remember we went on holiday to... It was somewhere in Greece when I was about 12 and I spent the entire two hours in the airport, like, writing down all the Greek signs for, like, exit and toilets and stuff and making these notes about other languages. <laughs> and then did French and German at uni and then went on to do economics. And I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. To be honest, I had no idea. Like, I wanted to be a sports coach for quite a long time and did, like, a football coaching qualification and it changed but yeah poet wasn't it wasn't on the agenda you don't really like the label performance artist is that right yeah like I'm not really bothered I don't really mind what be like there's worse things to worry about in the world but I think it takes away from the people that I consider proper performance poets the only reason I don't like it is not because of some like thinking that written poetry is better or anything like that it's because doing a lot of gigs and having gone through kind of reading my poems before they were published, I think there's some brilliant performance poets who genuinely write, you know, whole hour shows for audiences, with audiences in mind, do audience interaction. It's kind of equivalent, I guess, to to writing a play, but then also being the actor in it. And I don't do that, and I can't. Do you think that poems can change the world? Maybe not without laws changing as well. I think they can influence things. I think I don't think anything on its own can change the world. That's quite a big thing. But I think poems can definitely influence culture and policy even. Part of a bigger picture they can. Holly, thank you so much for going on the show. That's all right. Thanks for being so enthusiastic. <laughs> Hiccups. You had hiccups after pasta. You asked me to frighten you. I told you water is being packaged into plastic bottles every day which in their millions are tossed away and floating into frightened seas that fishermen are fishing these instead of fishing diseased fish. You said that is not the type of fear that helps get rid of hiccups. That's all for this week. The exhibition Basquiat Boom For Real is at the Barbican in London until the 28th of January. Next week, we'll be talking about goodness knows what. <laughs> and we'll be speaking to the writer and photographer, Teju Cole. Tell us what you think about Basquiat's paintings and Holly Bucknish's poems at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash everything else podcast. Or send us an email everything else at ft.com you can subscribe on itunes stitcher acast or wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else everything else is produced by chica airs we've been griselda murray brown and al gilmore we've been grizz murray brown and al gilmore <laughs> and our music is composed and produced by fatten <laughs> <laughs>